works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And this is God's word. Uh, this word is true and trustworthy. He's spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning as saints in Christ. But we also come as sinners who wonder why painful things happen to us. And so I pray your spirit would be at work this morning that we might see our suffering Savior, that we might see and trust him in the darkness of our suffering so that your works might be displayed in us and through us. So may the light of your presence chase away our unbelief this morning as we meditate on the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was the, the fall of 1878, and that was when the, one of the worst maritime disasters took place in British history in London. There was over 600 people who died in the River Thames when a passenger ferry collided with another boat. And many of these victims uh, from this passenger fa ferry were from Charles Spurgeon's church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And so you can imagine as a, as a pastor, everybody's coming to church expecting to receive comfort. He's expecting to give comfort to, to help wrestle with that big question of why. You know, why did this happen to, to people we know and love? And it's, in his sermon, it was almost a throwaway comment, but he, he praised the kindness of God in that in his providence, he would rescue one particular one devout Christian lady. And the way it was heard by most everyone in the, in the uh, congregation was, are you saying that those who died were less devout? You know, that they were more sinful than this woman who was saved? Right? Was my loved one being punished for their greater sin? Was God judging those who died and only saved the best? And in other words, pastor, who sinned that my loved one died? And we'll come back to Spurgeon later and how he, he dealt with the accidental mess of his own making. <laughs> um, but, but don't you have those questions? When you see someone who's had a, a hard life from birth, um, when tragedy strikes somewhere in the world, but even more particularly when pain comes into your world, um, yeah. whose fault is this? And we, we start looking at ourselves, we, we blame others for that pain. Uh, we, we've got questions. And when I first preached through this passage, this was in 2015. It was the week, before, it was basically several days before we got my father's cancer di diagnosis. And so I had no idea that as I was getting, I mean, my dad had been sick for a year, so I knew things weren't well, but I had no idea that we we're going to have to, I was going to have to apply these lessons um, that, that week. Right? And of course, it, it brings up all kinds of questions. Why? Right? Who sinned? You know, I'd have family members say, you know, why would God take a pastor 
who served him so faithfully, why would he take him so young? And so with those questions, what I want to do this morning is, is help us, help myself, help you sharpen our theology, sharpen our view of suffering as we wrestle with the problem of pain. And I have two goals. One, understand the text in order to help us process our own pain so that we can be comforted by the gospel, but so that we can comfort others and be good counselors and not ask Difficult questions in front of someone who's suffering, like the disciples do in this text. All right, so let's jump into the passage. Let's ask Jesus, like the disciples, um, who sinned to cause this pain? And that's, that's my first point, who's to blame for our pain? And, and so you look at the text, right? Jesus is leaving the temple right after, the, at the end of this argument, the Jews had wanted to throw stones at him, to, to kill him. And as they pass by this man who's been blind since birth, right, here's someone who's been suffering his whole life, never seen his mother's smile, right, never, he could feel the warmth of the sun but can't see the bright shining beauty of the sun. He can't even see the architectural wonder that is the temple that he begs in front of. Right, here is a person who is completely dependent on the mercy and kindness of those around him. He's been, because of his suffering, he's been alienated from family, from worship, uh, from being fully human. He, he, he's a sufferer, right? And so the disciples, um, I'm assuming have seen this person before, but just to kind of give them some credit, but they asked this theological question in front of a suffering person, who sinned that this man was born blind, which I'm sure made him feel fantastic, All right. And so basically they give two bad reasons, two, I would argue, overly simple explanations for suffering. Um, you know, we're going to blame the sinner or blame his family. And so let's just meditate for a moment. If you were to take them seriously, where will that lead you? Right? And so if you, one, of, one way will lead to bitterness and anger at others. The other is going to leave you walking around with guilt and shame. It's my fault. Right? You're either going to blame yourself or you're going to blame others. You're going to be angry at the world or angry at yourself. You're going to walk around saying how much I suck <laughs> or you're going to walk around and say, yeah, my life stinks because those other people suck. Right? And what I love about Jesus' response is, is these are simplistic views of suffering. He says, neither. Right? You're asking the wrong questions. So maybe I should start here is, what do you think? What, what's your tendency? What counsel do you tend to give when someone says, why is this happening to me? Right? Do you blame yourself or do you blame others? Do you, do you get out the sin microscope on yourself or are you looking for a scapegoat? Right? It's helpful to know that the, the disciples are asking a common question because this is what the rabbis did. Uh, they would connect sin to suffering. Right? If you break God's commandments, bad things will happen. I mean, that's, it's, it's one way to read the Old Testament covenant. Right? And, but if you're, you're listening to the question, here's a man who's blind from birth, and they're saying, did this man sin so that he was born blind? Right? Just stop and think about that for a minute. Right? How could he be punished for sin he had not yet committed? 
Right? And so some of the rabbis wrestled with this, and they'd say, you know, you could actually sin in the womb. Right? So Jacob and Esau, when they were beating each other up in, 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 Rachel's, in Rachel's womb, uh, some would say that Esau lost his blessing because of the, the violence in the womb. Um, or other, other teachers, other rabbis would say, you know, that the soul is, it has always existed. It's, you know, you existed before you were born. And because the Bible says humans are both good and bad, you can sin before you're born. So therefore, perhaps this man sinned and he was struck with blindness because God looked down the quarter of time and saw what kind of terrible person he would be and maybe he punished him for that. Right. So you can, you can see, to us it sounds superstitious a little bit, um, because who would believe that bad things are happening now because of something you did in the past or in another life? <laughs> sound familiar? I mean, it should. <laughs> it's karma. Right? That if you do good, do bad, it's going to shape your future. Right? That your present pain can be blamed on what you did in the past. I mean, people have this view all the time. Right. Your pain is all your fault. So perhaps this isn't a bad question. You know, you, you throw a little karma in with some religion, and it, it gets even uglier because then you're saying, well, God is punishing me because I did this. Right. Or in, in, the, in, Christ, in some Christian circles, right, they'll, they'll look at your pain and say, if you just believed enough, if you just had enough faith, God will take the pain away. But then if your pain doesn't go away, like in the case of a man born blind, then clearly it's his fault because he just doesn't believe enough. I mean, we have all kinds of creative ways of taking the blame for the, some kind of ongoing chronic big pain. And what Jesus does here is he just says, neither, I'm not going to let you make a one-to-one -one correlation and causation between your, between your moral failures and your pain. I know some of you are going, yeah, I can think of some, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, you do reap what you sow. There is, it's a little obvious, right? If you drink too much, you get drunk, you can't walk straight, fall in a pothole, break your leg, right? You can trace a line to say, yeah, you got drunk, right? Or if, if you smoke five packs a day and you end up with lung cancer, right, your doctors are going to say, I told you that if you didn't change, you're, you're going to get sick. But Jesus is looking at something different, right? This, this particular lifelong suffering, these big pain moments when you're wrestling with, with death, when you're wrestling with something that's just inexplicable, right? If you're looking at someone like a man born blind, how do you know what God would be punishing him for? How do you know what God would be punishing you for? Right? It's a long list. If I'm going to blame, if I'm going to say, God, you're punishing me for fill in the blank, how do I know? I mean, you add to the fact that in John chapter 9, the, the, the payoff, if you will, of this Jesus' uh, sign is to show the Pharisees that they're blind to their own sin. In other words, they're not even aware of their self-righteousness. They're not even aware of how judgmental they're being. They're not aware of their unbelief in the Messiah. In which case... If God's going to punish you for your sin, how are you even going to know what to ask or what to own up to if you can't see it? Right? And so the point is here is Jesus says, neither, right? Don't blame yourself. Don't be like Job's counselors when you're dealing with suffering people and yourself. 
Right? Remember Job, he lost his sons, he lost his kids, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. And his friends come alongside him, and, and as he's wrestling with pain, they confidently declare, it must be because you sinned and offended God somehow. Right? And what they do is saying, okay, I see you're suffering. Let me take this extra weight of guilt and just lay it on your shoulders. Right? Jesus says, this man is not blind because he sinned. I think it's fair to say blaming yourself it's too simplistic when it comes to suffering. What about the other option? Should we blame other people? Is it, is it his parents' fault that he's born blind? I mean, some of the rabbis would say that, that if, if your mom uh, sinned while she was pregnant, that, sin could pass, that punishment for the sin could pass on to you in the womb. Right? And if you're going to give the disciples some credit, right? They are reading the Old Testament where you get passages like, like this, that God is merciful and gracious in Exodus 34. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But the second half says, by, he will by no means clear the guilty and he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, they're, they're Jesus is going to say this is simplistic, but they're, they're looking at the parents and saying, perhaps they did something terrible, and now the kids are, this poor man who's blind is paying the, the penalty for it, right? Because you live in a community, and the sin of others affects us, and if your parents are sinners, we all tend to creatively imitate the sin of our parents. And we're all wrestling with that complex web of relationships that affect us. You have sinners and sufferers living together. That causes pain. And so, this is the other, one other way that we deal with suffering is rather than blame ourselves, we point other, words, other, other places and say, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And so you'll find all kinds of people and ourselves, angry at the government, angry at our parents, angry at the system. Uh, it gets really ugly when you start blaming particular groups of people. Uh, because of their wealth or their race or their whatever, you fill in the blank. But basically, my pain is their fault. Someone has to pay, and because we're good Americans, we sue. <laughs> right? And so there's, two, there's really two big ways we, we process our pain. We conser folks who are more conservative tend to moralize suffering, which makes you not a great counselor. If you're saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at your sin and say, why are you here? You got yourself into this predicament, you get yourself out. Right? And our, our more liberal friends tend to embrace a worldview, and we're, we're, we see this all the time, where you're, you're just a victim. And as a victim, you have to blame someone else. Right? Which also is not great counsel. Right? And of course, the really creative among us do both. We're both angry at others and, and feeling guilty at the same time, hating ourselves and someone else. This is the problem of pain and how we process it. Because we live in a moral universe where suffering and death affects 100% of the human population. And everybody outside of Jesus, in the dark, are trying to figure out how we got here and why it hurts. Because if Jesus is the light of the world, and that's been the narrative all the way through the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, 
We wrestle with our pain without Jesus in the dark. The only way to deal with the why and the how is, is to come to the light of the world who shows us, who gives us uh, clues and hints and explains the Bible for us, explains God's plan. And so if you're going to ask who sin that we suffer, should I blame me or others? Jesus says, don't. In this case, he says, neither. And that's why Spurgeon, when, when he, the next week he got up after getting all kinds of flack all week long, he clarified, he had to clarify his remarks. He said, I, you know, I made it sound like this person was saved because they were so good. And it means those must have died because they're so bad. And so this is, this is a quote from his sermon. He says, the other, because I said the other day that Providence saved a certain godly woman, some people drew the inference that I condemned those who perished. No sentiment could have been further from my mind. I ascribe to God's providence death as well as life, and that has nothing to do with the character of the person. Pastor, who sinned that they died? Spurgeon's answer was, neither. We live in a universe where death is real, and God is in charge. Right? Jesus, in Luke 13, he's, a, he's asked a similar question, right, where a, a tower in this place called Siloam fell over, and it killed 18 people. Right? And the disciples, or Jesus turns the question on the disciples, were those people who died worse sinners than the good people in Jerusalem? He says, no, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Everybody sins. Everybody suffers. Everybody's going to die. In other words, be blunt, right? Why are we so quick to assume that we can inoculate ourselves against the pain with our goodness or by being better than others or someone else's badness? Right? And so if you're going to be honest, this is, this is the story. Who sinned that, that this man was born blind? Jesus, who sinned? And the answer is everybody. Sin's the problem. And so a pastor put it this way, if you're created, we are created by a loving God and he is the giver of every good gift. And how many opportunities do you have to trust him, to keep his commandments, to love your neighbor as yourselves, to treat others as you want to be treated? And at the same time, how many times, like Adam, like Eve, have we believed we are wiser and smarter than God and just do whatever we want? And then after all those times, having ignored our Creator, having rejected His love and wisdom, have we turned around to God and say, you owe me a better life because I've been so good. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to be mad at you, myself, and others. See, goodness does not inoculate you against pain. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus, who says, which of you convicts me of sin in chapter 8, and nobody can say a word, and yet the one without sin lives in poverty, is much maligned, lied about, unjustly put to death, and nailed to a tree. And so if the heart of our faith is the perfect man suffering, we should see that goodness does not determine whether you have a good life or a bad life. Read Ecclesiastes the absurdity of the world in which we live. 
Now, Jesus had every right to blame others, to get angry. He said, I could call down legions of angels, but like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he stays silent, trusting his father. And so if you're going to ask who's to blame, according to the Bible, all suffering happens because of sin in general. But it's very simplistic to try and draw a line between a specific sin and specific suffering. Every bad thing that happens is because read Genesis 3 and the fallout. Sin in general. One man sinned and death entered into the world and because of this one man, death reigns. Which was initiated through the deception of the evil one. Do you see how freeing this is? I mean, it it sounds counterintuitive, but if you were... If you can't pin your sickness, your death, why you stub your toe in the middle of the night, right? Everything, major pain to minor pain to specific sins. Do you see how freeing that is? I mean, the ancient world and today with karma, whenever bad things happen, you go, what God did I offend to make this happen? Who do I need to atone for or atone to? The karma question is, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, in the, the big storyline of the Bible, the relationship between suffering and sin is much more complex, especially because of the gospel. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, not just a sufferer. You're a saint in Christ. Romans 8, there is therefore right now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, all the punishment for sin fell on Christ on the cross, which means your pain can't be punishment right now as a Christian. Jesus took that punishment one time forever. Now, in order to deal with our pain in a dark world where we can't see why, you have to come to Jesus, the light of the world. It's the only way to make sense of a dark world, to see your suffering through faith in the suffering Savior. And so we're going to tie all this together, right? Do you see how this is going to make you a better counselor, a better friend, a better uh, caretaker for the suffering? Now, you're not walking into the room with a microscope saying, all right, who screwed up here, <laughs> right? Let you, let you love sufferers before you talk about any kind of sin issues. Right? And if we're going to trust Jesus to take away our guilt, and, and he treats us better than we could deserve. Um, shouldn't we imitate that as we care for the brokenhearted? So we don't want to, as good Christians who are called to comfort others with the comfort we've received, we want to comfort them. You can't comfort them by blaming them for their sin. You can't comfort them by teaching them to be angry at the world. Show them Jesus. Show them the light of the world. He let himself be snuffed out in the dark out of love for sufferers and sinners. Which leads to our next question. If sin is in the world, suffering is in the world, what is God's purpose for our pain, according to Jesus here in this text? As we look at this cryptic line that Jesus says, uh, it was not that this man sinned in verse 3 or his parents 
but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so here's, here's I think, the, the teaching here. Suffering's going to happen. But, but what, one thing that can happen for Christians in suffering, in pain, is that God's work can be displayed in us. Right? I mean, in verse 3, the key word is that. In, in the Greek, it's a, it's a purpose word, so that. Right? The reason this man was born blind is so that the works of God through Jesus might be displayed in him. There was a purpose for this man's suffering that nobody saw. They couldn't see until Jesus showed up on the scene. Right? And so the, this different reason as for why this man is blind, not blaming himself, you know, not blaming the man or not blaming others, um, is so that God's glory might be shown off in him. Right? And so I think you can pull, step back and say, why, what is God up to in our pain? What is his providence doing to help us see the glory of God and the glory of his grace in the midst of that pain? Because look, look, look at how Jesus loves this blind man. Right? The purpose of signs is to show off the glory of Jesus so you can see who he is, as well as um, seeing what God is like in the world, Right? And so one of the things you see when you look at Jesus healing this blind man, loving this sinner, is you see his kindness to a man who never asked for help. I mean, does he ask to be, to see? Does he cry out for help? Does, does he even know who is loving him, who's, who's healing him? I mean, in the, in the context, Jesus simply reaches down, makes mud with his spit, and sends him away to be washed, and the man's testimony becomes amazing grace. Right? I once was blind, but now I see. And so one of the things you see in the healing of the blind man is Jesus' grace for sufferers. He draws near. He, he moves towards us. Same testimony as Psalm 34. Uh, when David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all, all my fears. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And those who take refuge in him shall never be condemned. So one of the reasons this man is suffering or what Jesus is able to do through his suffering is is magnify his grace to see. It's one of the things we can do in our suffering. As we believe in the gospel and can confidently say, I know God is not mad at me. I don't know why he's allowing me to go through this. But because Christ is alive, this pain is only temporary. It's a light momentary affliction. There's an even greater weight of glory to come. Right? Get to testify to his grace. Second, we also get to see God's power. I mean, Jesus does this miraculous thing. Uh, he, he heals a man who was born blind. And he reveals his glory in that. 
Um, I mean, one, think about it this way. The way Jesus loves this blind man, he includes his suffering in the story of the redemption of the world. I mean, as Christians, I'm not, I'm not aware of another faith or worldview that, that names suffering as bad, as evil, as not good, like Christianity does, but then also turns around and says, God can use that suffering for good, whether you see it or not. In other words, the Bible honors suffering people simply by naming it as not good. Because if there is no God, there's no purpose to your pain. There's no plan. It's just life is full of sound and fury. It signifies nothing. You know, you, you just drew the short end of the stick. In other words, you're only going to be left. If there's no God, you have to blame somebody. You're going to blame yourself. Or you're going to blame others. And you're going to be stuck with your anger at the world or a whole lot of shame, wishing you did things differently. Wow. You know, the story of the Bible is God is able to redeem sufferers. suffering. Pastor Jim, that's what it's all about in Romans 8. We looked at Genesis 50 when Joseph, after being hated by his brothers, was threatened to be killed, was thrown, sold into slavery, and then wrongly accused of assaulting his boss's wife who had tried to seduce him. He's thrown in jail where he's forgotten about even after he helps his friend. When he finally gets out and is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, right? It's a great happy ending, but there's decades of pain with no explanation. But he's able to say at the end in Genesis 50 that, that God had a plan that what his brothers meant for evil, God was able to use for good. And our problem is we wrestle with these questions as we can't see the good while we're in pain. And so how do we who live in the dark see, come to the light of the world and see? How do you trust Jesus with your pain? Well, put yourself in the shoes of the blind man. What is he called to do in order to be healed? He has to trust God in the darkness. You can't see. In fact, Jesus makes it worse because we don't, it says he's blind. We don't know if he has, if things are fuzzy. We don't know if he's if, he's, if it's completely dark, if there's, he can see shades of light. But all we know is Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, and smears it over his eyes. So it's definitely, he definitely can't see anything now. It's completely dark. And then he says, go wash at the pool of Siloam, which means scent. You say, why spit? Why mud? I mean, I think it's an allusion to Genesis. Uh, the creation story, when God makes man from the dust of the earth, watered by the the springs from the ground that God makes mud to create humans. Um, and so here's, here's an example of Jesus through the mud making this blind man a new creation and make him fully human. But the process of seeing began in the dark. Right? And so this blind man is sent on a dark path with mud in his eyes, sent to the scent, scent place to be healed. In other words... How are you going to trust God in the dark? Obey in the darkness, even if things get worse. Trust the light of the world in the darkness of your pain. Why can you do that? Well, look at Jesus' 
I said these cryptic words that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I mean, part of this is him saying, hey, look at what I'm about to do. I'm going to prove to you that I am the light of the world by giving sight. But he says, night is coming, right? It's obvious. You, you can't work outside in the dark. But I think there's more to it than this. Jesus is implying that, that there's a time coming when he's not going to be in the world. Night is coming. But we have works to do while it's light out. Talking about his disciples. We, him and his disciples. And so, on the one hand, Jesus is saying, um, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is preparing for the cross. Night is coming. We have to love sinners while we can. While I'm here. While I'm here with you. And so then he loves this man. But the night of the cross is coming. The night of his death is coming. And so why can you trust him? How did Jesus purchase your salvation? By trusting God in the darkness as the light of the world. I mean, that's what the gospel narratives tell us that when Jesus was hanging from the cross, the darkness fell over the land. And, and even more so, the, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning that he's lost the light of the presence of his Father as he's bearing our sins away. And Jesus, the perfect man, had to trust that his Father's power and love would rescue him even from the darkness of death. So that you would see that even if you don't know the why, you can see that God is good. <laughs> and that he has a plan for pain. So you really can say with greater sight than Joseph, right, what was meant for evil, God is going to use for, for good. He's able to work all things, to get, all things together for the good of those who love him. And those all things includes... Not knowing the pain now, or the why of the pain now, but it, the, the good is the future. Painless future forever. Living in the light of God's presence, where Jesus the Lamb will be our light. So, if Jesus took that punishment, he can't be punishing us with pain. Let's apply this. We're going to be good friends, good counselors, know that God is at work through this, our suffering and our pain, and he's going to show off his glory and show off his grace in us and through us, should we trust him. Because as I, as I pointed out, Jesus says, we, his disciples, must be about the works of him who sent me. Who are the we? It's his disciples. And what is the work? Well, the work Jesus just did was to love a suffering person. So what is the work of Jesus' disciples? To care for the suffering. To bring the light of Jesus' presence to those in pain. Don't bring moralism. Don't bring condemnation. Bring grace. If you're going to walk into a room and say, what, what did you do to get into this mess? I mean, Steve Brown says it in a really ridiculous way. Right, if you're going to hunt for sin, I mean, that's pretty much like a mosquito at a nudist beach. You're never going to run out of things to do. <laughs> but if you're going to seek to love 
sinners and sufferers. That's the hard work of, being, of, of living out the grace of the gospel and comforting those who are really wrestling in the dark, saying, God, where are you? And so when you show up, you're bringing the light of Jesus' presence as a Christian. And we get to sit with those in the dark and say, I don't know what God is doing with this. We don't. But we know, illustrated by the story of this blind man, that Jesus came to take away our pain, to take away to take away the suffering that has inflicted us from birth, which is the curse, death itself. But at this moment, we get to trust him and trust his grace and trust his power to work through this pain. To maybe even bring about a good that none of us can see, ask, or imagine. That will help us comfort others with the comfort we have received in the gospel by coming to the light of the world in faith. It empowers us to trust him in the dark. And that's why uh, the, the mystic Julian of Norwich um, in the ancient church would say, it was necessary that there should be sin. And this is the comfort, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which we sung this morning. Right? And she says, these things were shown to me without any manner of blame for asking the question nor to any who will be saved. Come to the light of the world. He will be with you in the dark because Christ is alive. Let's pray. Fathers, I pray you would uh, bless this meditation to our hearts, um, that we would, your spirit would enable us to see Jesus uh, loving us even to death on a cross, and that would give us the patience to trust him with our pain. I pray for Hope Church that it would continue to be uh, what, what we heard earlier, um, a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, that we might love suffering people well, and in doing so, glorify Jesus. So may, may we be a place, may we be that city on a hill that Jesus talked about, uh, that as we do the good works of, of loving sufferers, uh, that they would see us and give thanks to God and give you glory for, for the kindness that we have shown in Christ. So equip us to do those good works that you have planned for us to do, which includes loving sinners, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.